inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Today we have, I think, eight questions and you'll see question number two has a ton of comments on it. It's something that maybe we should talk about in a bigger way in like a full video. I do have a video coming out about fear of intimacy, which is kind of part of it, but not fully. So I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments. But without further ado, let's just jump into that first question. And it says, hi, Katie, I am so scared of being a bad patient that I overanalyze everything and anything about my therapy sessions and even things that I do outside of therapy. I always think about my uh, think what about what my therapist might say about what I'm going to do. And then I think about a million different ways to tell him about it, but I never actually do. I'm just so scared that he will think that I'm stupid or cringe. I tell myself that I'm embarrassed for even trying. All I want is for life not to be this hard. I have complex PTSD and I don't really know what my question is. I just need help. I think this is incredibly common. First of all, know that you're not alone. And obviously this got the most thumbs ups and comments below it. So here we are. We're all in it together, right? We're all going through similar things. Now, it's really common when we have anxiety, which I would assume you have some either as a part of your complex PTSD or standalone because this sounds very anxiety driven to me where we overanalyze. It could even be part of like OCD or something like that, obsessive compulsive disorder. But overall, I want you to know that it's, it's very common to, once we start therapy, to kind of start overthinking things or overanalyzing. I even feel like I did that when I was in therapy and in graduate school to become a therapist. Like I would consider all the different ways things could be viewed or treated or what did this really mean? And it, I like, it was driving me crazy, essentially. I was driving myself crazy. And so know that, you know, we all go through these kinds of phases where we, we, overanalyze and we we think about things and ruminate and worry about what our therapist is going to think. My best advice for you, I know that there's not really a question here, but my best advice is to let your therapist know this is happening. Because like I said, even just reading your question, I had all these thoughts come up, right? It could be anxiety. It could be OCD. Um, is it part of your complex PTSD or not? I have a lot of questions about this. And then as a therapist, I'm sure your therapist is good at his job. As a therapist, then I want to see where else this is happening in your life. Because things that come up in therapy, I don't want to say never, but it's very unlikely that they don't come up other places as well. Therapy's sometimes just like a a louder version or we're better able to notice it in therapy because that's kind of like what therapy is about or our therapist might draw our attention to it. But these patterns of behavior aren't exclusive to therapy. They happen in our other relationships and other parts of our life. And so I'd be interested in other situations, maybe in school or maybe in your other relationships where you've overanalyzed or worried about things in the same way. And so anyways, long story short, what I'm saying is bring it up with your therapist and let them know that you're having this experience because it's really common and it'll allow your therapist to more quickly identify the next steps you should take in your work together. Because like I said, I had so many thoughts and about anxiety, OCD, uh, hypervigilance as a result of your complex PTSD and all sorts of things in between. And I've never heard, I mean, just hear me out on this. Therapists are not there to judge. 
That's not our job. We don't get paid to do that. Actually, we could lose our job for doing that. It's not helpful. And so a lot of the comments below this question said, I've never had my therapist, you know, think I was stupid or say something or act like it was cringy. And I want you to know that that's not how therapists should ever act. And I don't think your therapist is going to do that. I'm like fairly certain. However, if, if a therapist, anybody out there, if your therapist ever tells you that what you're thinking or doing is stupid or makes you feel stupid or acts like it's really cringy or embarrassing that you're even bringing this up, they're not good at their job. Our job is not to judge. Our job is to show up for you and be what you need so that you can work through what you need to. We're supposed to be this safe holding environment. You're supposed to listen and care and not judge. And so I'm just here to tell you that therapists hear this stuff all the time. It's not stupid or cringy. There's no need to be embarrassed. So many of us struggle with this. When I was a teenager, I struggled with wanting to do therapy perfectly, you know, and and thinking that I had to do everything just right and worrying that if I didn't do something outside of therapy perfectly or inside therapy perfectly, like it wasn't going to be any good. And one of the best things I did was tell my therapist about it. And that honestly... That led like a grip, like a year's worth of therapy work where I was supposed to not do things 100%, like turn in my therapy homework, like not complete, not call people back right away, like just things like people pleasing, perfectionistic behavior that I was struggling with, but I didn't even realize that was it. You know what I mean? I didn't have like a name to put to it. But anyways, I'll stop blabbering on. Um, I just want you to know that it's very normal. Tell your therapist. It'll honestly be one of the best things you do and can help guide your work together. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And like I said, this is a long one. There's tons of comments and questions below it, but let's just jump into it. Okay. We'll start with this first part of it. It says, Hey Katie, I was wondering if you had any advice on how to enter into intimacy as a sexual abuse survivor. I find myself terrified at the idea of ever having sex. However, I also find myself having a difficult time holding my partner's hand. I thought I could at least hold his hand. However, I still sometimes panic when I'm doing this. I know that my partner would never hurt me. However, I still find myself scared when entering into physical contact with him. If you could provide any advice on how to help with this, I would be, I would be grateful because entering into intimacy as a sexual abuse survivor is challenging. 100%. It's incredibly difficult. Um, That entire workbook, the courage to heal workbook is essentially all about sexual abuse survival. And it's, it's definitely catered to those of us who had childhood sexual abuse. So if that's not you, I'm sure there are better resources out there, but the, towards the end, the last two chapters are incredibly helpful when it comes to reclaiming our sexuality and having a healthy sex life moving forward. And so that's one of my first tips is to pick up that workbook. Um, it can be very challenging to work on your own. So I would encourage you to you know, bring it to your therapist and tell them this is what you're wanting to do. And they can kind of help guide you and help work it, work through it with you. Um, okay. But there's a lot that we can do now. The first, and so that's a courage to heal workbook. Number two would be to obviously be in therapy, working through this. And part of that should be some exposure therapy. And the reason I say exposure therapy is because first of all, it's the most effective when we're trying to combat triggers. Cause what's happening here is a trigger you know that your partner's never going to hurt you. He's never been any, you know, done anything to make you question that you feel safe with him, but any contact is like, "Eh." and so we're triggered. And that's because it reminds us of probably abuse in the past and physical contact is just difficult. And we're going to have to 
get to a place where we don't have that trauma response anymore. And we can do that through exposures. Now, depending on what uh, your therapist thinks or what their specialty is, you know, they'll slowly guide you through some of the exposures, whether that's like imagining it happening or even just writing about it happening um, and having some ways to calm our system down. Or it could be prolonged exposure where we hang in the triggering or I guess it'd be like overwhelming kind of situation, image, whatever, something that is triggering. We're going to hang in there a little longer so we can become what we know that we're okay. Nothing bad or terrible is going to happen. And we calm ourselves down. So there's a lot of different ways we can do exposure therapy and a lot of different techniques that they use, but that will be so incredibly helpful. I know exposure therapy sounds scary, but when I tell you that it's not, and it's, it's slow, it's not like we just jump right in. Sure. You could do what people call flooding. I'm, I never, I'm sure there's effective, like we have good results. There's been research that proves that works. I haven't seen it in my, with my patients and people who I know have done it, hated it and thought it was terrible. A very small N in my study, but still, I don't think flooding is that helpful, but slow exposures with tools and resources can help you be okay and help you work through this. Okay. So Courage Tale Workbook, Exposure Therapy, and then my third, and this is kind of part of the Courage Tale Workbook, but also kind of part of what we, you know, what we'll want to do, something that will help is breaking down physical contact into three chunks. Number one being things that are okay. Now there might not be much in this right now. It might be, um, standing next to one another and our shoulders are brushing or we're not even making contact, but we're really close. Okay. But whatever physical contact we're okay with that feels fine, neutral, put it in that, that column. Second column is for things that are sometimes okay. Like maybe holding his hand has been okay in the past, but all of a sudden it's not. That was a, it's sometimes okay. We don't really know, right? Maybe. And then the third and final column are things that are not okay right now. And I want this to be like a living document. I want it to be something that you share with your partner and you talk through these things um, and knowing that they can move around, right? Something like you said, the hand holding maybe went from always okay to maybe okay, or maybe never, right? And we kind of need to be feel free to move these things around as we get to know ourselves and sharing this with your partner and working in the space of things that are okay first is going to be really helpful and healing. And it's also good for them to know because they might trigger us or push us to do more than we're comfortable without realizing it, thinking, but I love you and I wanted to kiss you or whatever. And we're like, oh, that's too much. Um, and so, you know, doing that can be also helpful. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I think that's a good place to to start this answer. Cause like I said, there's a ton of comments on here. So let's just jump into those comments. And it says, as an add-on, I also struggle with intimacy of any kind. And I'm wondering if it's related to past experiences. Can you talk about childhood sexual abuse when both the victim and the abuser are the same age? Oh, child on child sexual abuse. Um, in this particular case, the abuser's actions were not accidental and did not seem to be simple, playful behavior, but they also did not intend to cause harm, probably because they don't really understand. And although they acted without consent, it was not due to a threatening or violent manner and was um, was over the clothing. Is this still considered abuse? Yes. Um, and how can we tell if the problems we, we experience as adults, like intimacy issues, are related to events like this from our past or if they're caused by something else? For context, I also struggle 
with constant anxiety, maybe generalized anxiety disorder that is worse around people. Okay, so it could have like a social phobia component. OCD tendencies since early childhood, attachment issues, fearful, avoidant, panic attacks, irritability, persistent feelings of shame, depression, and fear of intimacy. I've had a handful of experiences like this in uh, early childhood that were stressful enough to cause me to go into fight flight. But looking back, they don't seem significant enough to cause this level of distress. And I had actually forgotten about some of them. I don't want to make connections that aren't there or blame other people for my problems. But at the same time, something has had something had to have caused this, right? Yes. Any insight would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. Okay. So when it comes to this component, the fact that we have all all these issues that we're struggling with, right? Persistent feelings of shame, attachment, OCD tendencies since early childhood, constant anxiety. I want to know if this person, if you're not in therapy, please get in therapy. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I cannot encourage you enough. Um, And the attachment stuff... To me, this just reeks of childhood trauma. Now, what that can look like can be a lot of different things. And I want you all to know that often when we look back as an adult on a childhood situation, we're like, it wasn't that bad, right? Because we're looking at it through an adult lens. But that's why inner child work, that's why I'm doing an inner child workshop. Um, You can find more information on my website um, and I'll be launching it soon. So you'll know the dates and everything and I'll be promoting it so you won't miss out. But um, inner child work is so important and so healing because we we forget what it was like to be us at that age. And so if we can just connect briefly to us, we can realize how little resources we often have as children, right? We can't buy a a car to get away or a new apartment or move out of the house. We, we can't go live with someone else often. Um, maybe we have family, but not always, right? Or we didn't feel safe enough to do so. We didn't know how to do so. Um, we were told if, you know, there's, you forget how vulnerable you are as a child. And so it's really important to at least get in touch with that, with you at that age or a younger you, just so you can kind of, instead of minimizing or invalidating the trauma you experienced, you can identify it and accept it for what it is or what it was. Um, And so I think that this could have been, I think there's probably a bunch of things like the attachment makes me wonder about your parents and how they treated you. And if they were around or consistent, I wonder if there was, if, if you don't, cause there's no mention of actual physical abuse from your parents in any way. I wonder if there was emotional abuse or um, emotional neglect where it looks like our parents are doing everything they're supposed to, but they just aren't there for us emotionally, meaning they never check in on us. If we cry, they're like, get over it kind of. It's just there's no emotional support. So I'm very curious about that as well, because um, I think there's probably quite a few things going on because of the OCD tendencies. I can tell you from the get, though, that by and large, not all the time, but so common when it starts in childhood is when we don't really feel like we have any control over thing over things in our lives. Now, this could be because there is abuse from our parent. This could be because they're like helicopter parents, right? They're all in our business. We never get any independence. So we can feel like we don't have any control over our own life. Because you have to remember, OCD is kind of like a, it's a distraction 
it's a distraction from what else is bothering us. Um, and yeah, I don't want to get too much into OCD, but you guys know what I feel like it's like under that anxiety umbrella. So if we're worried a lot and we're, we feel like we don't have control, we take control over that by obsessing about something. So we can't think about anything else. And then doing the compulsion because we believe as the anxiety builds, something bad's going to happen. I got to do it. We get caught up in this and it gives us something else to focus on versus the other stuff going on in our lives. Um, yeah, so those are just my thoughts. I think there is something there. Um, we don't have to make connections right away. I think part of it, instead of thinking this caused this, because it's not always that direct, it's it's in there somewhere. But instead of worrying about a connection, I would encourage you, and I think something that might be really helpful is to do a trauma timeline. And all of these things that you think are like, maybe not that bad, or like, you know, little little baby traumas, however you've, you know, I don't know, labeled them, I guess, in your brain, all of those things. I want those on a timeline. I want to see, because like I've talked about before, there's big T traumas, like one big event, like I was in an earthquake and someone in my family passed away, or I, I went to war, or I was in a car crash, right? Or I was uh, physically abused. We can have those big T traumas, or we can have a bunch of little T's, like a lot of little events that still equal a PTSD response. And so I'm just very curious about that. And that that's where my brain goes is like doing a trauma timeline um, to see what that uncovers. And then we can work to make the connections back to, you know, what led to this. And I think it's probably a combination of things, but doing that timeline will help us sort it. Okay. Moving on, there's another add-on says, can the reverse be possible? As far as I know, I have no sexual abuse in my history, but I have some religious abuse or parental overexposure to the potential of sexual abuse and rape. For reference, my dad's a cop and my mom is a sexual abuse survivor. As a young adult, I was more open with my body as a fuck you, I think, to all the restrictions as chill. Oh, as a child and a teen, like you're, you had helicopter parents, which is a form of abuse, by the way. Um, And now that I'm in a long-term committed relationship, I find that I don't want to be touched like I did earlier in the relationship. Can this be because I was somehow abused and have no memory? I feel, um, I feel this is true and I keep waiting for memories to come up. Sorry if this is a random question. Thanks for all that you do. Love from Texas. Oh, a fellow Texan. Howdy. Um, okay. Now this is going to sound crazy, but if you've read my book, Traumatized, you'll know where I'm coming from. If you haven't, I encourage you to pick it up. Now, there's an entire chapter about what's known as transgenerational trauma. And again, I don't know if something did happen to you. It's okay to keep exploring that in therapy, but also know that because your dad has been traumatized, he's a cop. I, all of our first responders, I think, have been traumatized. So your dad's been traumatized. Your mom was a sexual abuse survivor, so she's been traumatized. And that trauma response is passed down to you through their behaviors, actions, and possibly even genetics, but there's still research and studies going on about that. But the way that your mom would react to other people, the fact that they're super overprotective of you, like I mentioned earlier, having helicopter parents is, it can be devastating and it can cause us to have a lot of different ways to cope because essentially we feel like we have no control over our lives. And that is, in my mind, a a form of emotional abuse because our parents are so we don't ever get the ability to be independent and think for ourselves. And because our parents are so scared all the time, they can emotionally abuse us as a result to get us to fall in line because they're so scared, if that makes sense. Um, Because I have a lot of tons, I cannot tell you the number of eating disorder patients I've had over the years who have helicopter parents. The correlation, I mean, I don't know, it's got to be at least 60%. So, you know, 
validate yourself. This is very common. What your parents did, it even though it was the best that they knew how to do, was not good. <laughs> I never know how to say it because people always say, you know, and I've even said this too, parents do the best that they can, but their best sometimes sucks. And your parents did the best that they could, but they... I don't know if they worked through their own ish, probably not. Either way, there was a trickle down effect where it affected you negatively. And so they weren't, you know, they didn't do that great of a job managing it. Um, being a parent's hard, right? Okay, so that's part of what's going on. And then you're swinging back and forth from earlier, kind of like being more sexual, being like, fuck you, because you were so restricted. That's like the rebellion in you. And that's very normal, especially as a teenager. It's very much a teenager type of thing. And now as you've gotten older, you recognize or maybe realize that like, you don't necessarily like that. And I'd hear me out. Sometimes when we do that, like, fuck you movement of of period of time where we're just acting, maybe not really in our best interest or not what we actually want, but more just out of pure rebellion, that can actually be traumatizing. And I know that sounds kind of crazy or like, but I put myself in that position. That doesn't mean that you liked it. And that doesn't mean that it was something that you wanted to be part of. It just means that as a, as a way to kind of say, fuck you back to your parents, you did this other thing. And it doesn't mean that that other thing, you know, is who you are and was what you wanted to do. And so I would encourage you to kind of be curious, not judgmental. We're going to be detectives about that time in your life and this time. And I want you to look for similarities and differences. And and because I wonder if because you're in a long-term committed relationship and there's no rebellion needed anymore, if now we're dealing with the ripple effects of having helicopter parents possibly being traumatized through our rebellion stage, um, you know, even just the transgenerational trauma that we could experience. Um, I, I think that's probably what's coming up, but I don't know. Again, we have to be curious, not judgmental. And I'd really encourage you to uh, check if, if if money is tight, check out my book at the library. Usually they have uh, copies of books or they'll get books for you. So check out my book, Traumatized. I have an entire chapter just about transgenerational trauma. I don't think we talk about that enough. An example that I gave in my book, Traumatized, about transgenerational trauma, um, honestly, in the wild, is from the red deer in I want to say it was in Russia, but it might have been, you know, up near where what used to be called the Soviet Union. Now, when the Soviet Union was in power, they had these, uh, you know, barbed wire fences, electrified fences in certain areas or probably around. I don't know if it was around like their camps or places that they wanted to protect, but they had men on there were like photos of men up on perches, like, you know, making sure that no one was getting in or out. And there were these huge fences and they were up for, I don't know how many years, however long this was going on. And they found this, I forget the guy's name, but he's a, he's a Russian uh, researcher and he followed these red deer. And even after these electrified fences were removed, right? The fall of the Soviet Union, things changed. They didn't need fences in whatever areas these happened to be. Um, They came down. And to this day, the red deer will not cross what used to be that fence and even the deer look a little bit different they've said from the ones that are like on one side of the fence versus the other even though there's actually no fence anymore because it's like every mama deer would teach her baby deer not to go near it she wouldn't go near it and if she got close she'd be scared and they'd run away right and I'd assume that was passed down because they watched another deer 
hit the fence and get electrocuted, right? And I know that sounds like really intense or like, well, that's not people. It's the same thing. If our parents have been through something or their parents' parents have been through something and they never processed it or it's still a threat, they're going to pass that stress and worry and PTSD response down to us. And so anyways, I say all of that because I I have a little hypothesis that in your life, because your mom and your dad both have trauma, I don't know if they've properly dealt with it. And I think they're passing it on to you. And also you've had your own uh, struggles because of their type of parenting and that, that rebellion streak could have led to traumatizing situations. And so again, I guess as a wrap up, be curious, not judgmental about your process and what kind of comes up for you and and see what you see what you find there's no need to judge we're just trying to learn it doesn't mean that we were abused but it doesn't mean we weren't and either way it doesn't make how you're feeling and what you're struggling with any less real we don't always have to have this like clear-cut answer that doesn't mean that that still what we're that what we're feeling isn't valid does that make sense it's like we don't have to have a an event to validate what we're going through we need to validate what we're going through ourselves so anyway those are my thoughts i hope it's helpful okay Moving on, there was, I think this is just, this is the last note. There's two more add-ons. Okay. This add-on says, I struggle with intimacy with my husband. He knows about my past now because sex was always just doing it because I knew that that's what he wanted and I avoided it when I could. We've been working on me being more present and I'm supposed to talk more about what I want, but I don't even know how. It almost makes it more awkward. I can physically enjoy it to a degree, but how do I get past letting myself go numb? Hmm. Working to stay present takes so much that sex almost becomes more of a chore than anything else. How do you open up more to your partner? And how do you know how to figure out what you need and want? Ooh, that's a good question. Okay, now I have quite a few thoughts. Number one, going back to what I said of putting things in those columns of acts that are okay all the time, acts that are maybe okay and acts that are not okay. I think that could be really helpful in talking about it with your spouse be really healing because your partner needs to know what's going on and what's okay and not okay. Um, and that can really help to share with them. Okay. So there's that. Then I think the exposure therapy component, working with your therapist to put together that hierarchy of what is overwhelming is going to be really helpful and really great. We're going to need to have resources to calm us down. And is sex going to be great when we first try to do it and try to stay present? No. Is it going to feel like a chore? Probably. Does that mean all is lost? No. We're just working there. We're working our way there. Letting your partner know as much as you can about what you're going through and what you're working on. Maybe bring them into a therapy session every so often so they can keep up with this process is going to be really, really helpful and really, really uh, hopefully healing for you, but also for them, because I find sometimes our partners just don't, because we don't want to tell them because it's embarrassing or there's lots of shame or whatever, then they think it's something they're doing. And so then they'll try other th- and they just don't understand. And often by them not understanding, they can try to do other things that, that honestly can make it worse for us, or they can say things that are more hurtful without even realizing that that's what they're doing. And it's done from a place of love and them trying to understand. But if we just help them understand and communicate, whether it's with the help of our therapist, which can be incredibly beneficial, or we do it on our own, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be really important for your relationship to keep moving forward. Okay. Um, and I think that's, that's really it, isn't it? 
Um, yeah, sex, I always just do it because I feel like I want to, I can physically enjoy it to a degree, but to stop yourself from going numb, that's going to come along with the exposure therapy as well as, you know, working on it in therapy, just processing, uh, trauma. Did you say if there was trauma? Um, yeah, your past. Yeah. So working through that will allow you to stay more present. And I think having those tools and those ways to calm our system down, something that you, in the Courage to Heal workbook, they talk about this. And I think this is, it's difficult for your partner, but it's also really important as you move forward is being able to start and stop. I know, I know it doesn't sound great, but it's not great right now. And we want to get it to be great. So if you start to feel yourself, my goal for you, if, if I was seeing you in my practice would be to identify the thoughts and feelings that come up before you go numb and try to take a break and calm your system down before you engage again. I know stop, stop and starting is not very uh, sexy or romantic, but that's not what we're worried about right now. That stuff will come later. Right now, we just want to not numb out. And so in order to not numb out, we're going to have to start and stop a little. And that's why letting your partner know and bringing them into therapy. I know this all sounds uncomfortable and I know you hate my answer, but when I tell you it's the best way to move forward, it really is. We have to work with them and we have to include them because it involves them and we won't be able to, to heal if we can't do that. And so identifying, you know, when we're starting to maybe dissociate or start to numb out and then stopping using some of our tools or skills can be really helpful. And that can help us push through so that it's, again, it's that exposure, right? We're still exposing ourselves to it. Okay. Okay. And before you know it, no urge to go numb. We'll get there little by little. And it sounds like you have a great partner and hopefully they, you know, they'll give you the time you need to, to work through this because it does, I mean, it's not like it's going to take forever. It's just a process and we just need some time so that we, sex doesn't feel like a chore and we're actually able to enjoy it and stay present. Okay. Final add-on says, thank you so much for asking this question. As an add-on, I often find myself dissociating and hating the pleasure that I feel when having sex. Is this normal? I'm a sexual abuse survivor as well. And a difficulty that I have has been feeling guilty after receiving pleasurable sex. Interesting. Somehow when my partner and I engage in pleasurable sex, it feels wrong. I don't know if this makes sense, but somehow it's almost like anything that feels good in sex is wrong. Is there anything that I can do to help this and start enjoying pleasurable sex? Yes. Great question. Now, because you were sexually abused, I would assume now I've talked about this in the past, but I would assume there's some connection with that past sexual abuse and feeling pleasure and, and knowing in your body, cause you were a child and being abused <clears throat> that that wasn't good and that it was bad or dirty or wrong. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. And so, even though you survived and got through, <clears throat> excuse me, um, even though you survived the sexual abuse and worked through it, there's still triggers there. There are still little landmines that we're hitting. And one of those is when you enjoy sex. And I've talked about this in the past, how actually having an orgasm is a physiological response and it's not something that we get to decide we want to have. And I know that that's hard for people to to hear and to accept, but I just, I'll keep saying it until we're able to do that because our body just does it. And oftentimes I've heard from tons of my patients and tons of members of our community who actually orgasmed when they were being abused. And so they think, oh, I wanted it or, and that can be part of that invalidation or part of the blame and shame game that trauma gets us caught in. Um, and I'm bringing that up only because I wonder, I'm curious if this person who asked this question had that experience and that's why that's a trigger so if you're actually enjoying it then it's bad and wrong because it reminds you of that time now that's just one hypothesis another hypothesis could be kind of that shame blame embarrassment component of sexual abuse and the fact that you might somewhere inside of you believe i'm not worth it or i'm i don't deserve this or um you know, it's something's wrong with me. There's no reason that I, that anybody would want to have sex with me, right? I don't know what kind of stories you've told yourself. That shame voice can be really loud and really nasty. I wonder if it's coming from there. Um, and so overall, I think part, part of it would be recognizing the, obviously the triggers earlier on so we can maybe stop, take a break, stay present. I want to use some grounding techniques because you said dissociation happens. Also, it could, we have to be curious about like where this is coming from and work in therapy to to process what's happened or why this is coming up. Um, and again, being honest with our partners. So if we have to start, start and stop, start and stop for a little bit, we can do that, but it can be worked through. A lot of it's just figuring out where this is coming from. And my guess would be, it has something to do, like I said, I have those two hypotheses, but could have to do with your self-talk now. That's why it's like continuing to this into your life today. Um, yeah, but that, you know, the exposure therapy, the acknowledging like when your brain's wanting to pull the ripcord, um, maybe challenging that shame spiral, maybe acknowledging that, you know, the abuse wasn't your fault, even if your body did create that response. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of healing in there. And again, no room for judgment. Just be curious. We're learning, right? Where is this coming from? Why is this happening? I hate it. Let's make it stop. And we can make it stop. We just have to figure out where and why, like, why is it happening? Then we can work to heal it. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, are some people just too damaged by trauma to heal? My therapist told me that might be the case for me your therapist sucks at their job and that I need to learn to live with it. what take their license. That's stupid. This after this was after telling her that I was having a rough patch and was feeling suicidal. And I was quite frankly, Oh, and it was quite frankly, devastating to hear. Of course it was. I thought the problem was that I wasn't getting the right kind of therapy for context. I was diagnosed with complex PTSD by her three years ago, but have been in therapy off and on for more than seven years. Okay. I've recently started in a group and I have one-on-one sessions every three to four weeks. Oh, that's not enough. 
I feel like that's too little. Yes, you and me both. But I can't get any more. Oh, it's the public health care system. God damn. You must be in like the UK or Norway or somewhere over there. Socialized systems. They, I don't know why they think three to four weeks is sufficient. Okay. I have a, um, I've had a lot of progress. Amazing. But now I feel stuck. Like any step forward is lost in the weeks in between sessions. And that the, and the situation makes me worse instead of better. Yeah, of course. I feel like it would be better to end the one-on-one sessions if I can't get them more frequently in maybe a different type than talk therapy. Would that be a mistake or is it possible to work on things like EMDR or somatic experiencing on your own? I don't have the resources to access private healthcare. Thanks for everything you do. It's invaluable. Of course, I'm so glad I could be a resource. Um, I hate your therapist. <laughs> and I'm not even going to apologize for it because I don't know what in the world would ever make a therapist tell someone they're like too broke to be fit. Like that'd be like, just hear me out. That'd be like you bringing your car into a mechanic and them saying, you know, there's just too much wrong with it. I can't fix it. And you're like, but that's your job, right? Like, sure, it might take some time and sure, it's going to cost money, but that's your job. Like, that's a therapist's job is to assist, work to heal. Um, Sure, you only get sessions every three to four weeks, which is fucking stupid and doesn't make any sense. And I would push and see I don't know, because your therapist sounds like they suck. But if we can at least ask them, are there like ways that you can get more? Because I do know in some systems, if you have certain diagnoses or if you um, have tried this for a while and it's not helping at all, you know, there are some caveats and ways that you can get more help. I don't think it's every week, but it's like every other week or every fortnight is, isn't it? Is it four? Is that what people say? I think that's what the British people say. Anyways, every two weeks you get a one-on-one therapy session. Um, I know you can get that in some cases, so I think it's worth asking. Um, Yeah, your therapist sucks. I'm so sorry. Okay, but back to the real question. Would it be better to end those sessions because you can't get them more frequently? And can you do uh, EMDR, somatic experiencing on your own? I do believe EMDR, I do not think is safe for you to do on your own. And I'm sorry. I Based on what I know about it, the the safety of it because you have to take yourself into those traumatizing or terrifying situations and and do the the tapping i just don't feel like emotionally it's safe for you to engage in that on your own that's just my opinion um other people might differ and think that it's you know think something else but i just really don't think that that's safe so i would not recommend that but however somatic experiencing if you have some resources, I think if you picked up, um, there's a couple somatic experiencing workbooks. You can go to my Amazon shop because the go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. I have the Peter Levine, I think it's called Waking the Tiger book. That's a great place to start to understand somatic experiencing. I also plan on doing some workshops and stuff on this. So, so you can, that could be helpful too, but also uh, there's another workbook in my Amazon shop. That's just tools. And it's like a gray with blue writing. I, I've used it to, um, with patients and when creating videos to offer some other exercises. And I think you can do some somatic experiencing on your own because a lot of it's just learning to be back in our bodies, which can be really hard when we have trauma. And so it's slow and steady and there's lots of really cool exercises to do. So that I think we could do a little bit on our own. Um, but should you quit? I, I, if you can get a different therapist, I would encourage you just to find one. If you can find someone who 
you know, is a trauma specialist or even someone who does attachment based work because they usually do a lot of trauma as well. Uh, yeah, even someone who does dialectical behavior therapy could be beneficial. Those are the things I would look for and see if anybody's available. If that, I don't know how your system works. You have to like get back in line. But I would encourage you to do that because your therapist doesn't sound very good at their job and you deserve to have someone who hears you, works with you and knows that you're you're making progress and and maybe you'd advocate to get you more sessions because three to four weeks just is shitty. Um, and there might be some, I don't know what your finances are. Obviously you said like you can't afford, you know, to access private health care, but and aside from doing that, there might be some kind of what I would call like adjunctive treatment. Like you have your group and that's awesome. I encourage you to do that. There are those free groups at Hope for Recovery. Um, it's hope with the number four recovery. I think it's .org. Um, they have tons of groups over there that are free. Also, there, we might be able to get you like, I know BetterHelp has different, uh, what do I call it? Like levels. So there's a link in all the descriptions of my videos you can join. I think it gives you like 15% off your first month or something, but you could do like the lowest amount of one. I, I And again, I don't know your financial situation. This might not be possible, but maybe we can just text with a therapist in between our sessions and that could kind of keep things going. And then in my mind, I'm like, okay, then we could sign releases from our better help therapist to our in-person therapist. And then we can make sure that things are moving along. And that might be a way to kind of bridge the gap since public is three to four weeks, which is stupid and private is too expensive. You know, maybe that's a way we can make it work. I don't know. Those are just some of my thoughts and ideas. Um, but yeah, we need to find you a different therapist. Okay. Now there was a comment on this as a, as an add-on, if someone has DID, which stands for dissociative identity disorder, does that mean that they will hold onto their trauma if they do not choose integration? No, not at all. I find it odd that a lot of the treatment is focused on integration of the parts or alters, but I would think that I would miss my alters or parts if they had to integrate as part of the therapy goal. Integration used to be thought of in, I don't maybe like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, as one of the only ways to like heal from DID. It's like one of the only outcomes. And if you don't know what integration means, it's essentially all of your alters that you've created over the years as essentially protect their protectors for you. You bring them all back into one again. So it's like you don't have DID anymore. And that's the goal. However, as many of you have educated me, and as I've educated myself more on this topic, I've learned that integration works for some people. Okay. It's just like anything. Don't knock it. If it helps one person, it's still a treatment goal. So some people do find integration to be beneficial, but by and large, people with DID do not want to integrate because they like their alters and they're part of this like comfort setup or support system we've created within ourselves. And it happens usually as a result of trauma. And so the idea that we have to like push them back together just doesn't feel right. Um, especially because once we've split, some of them are stronger than others. And it, I don't know, it just doesn't tend to work. The goal instead is to get them to work together so that one's not calling the shots and forcing another or, or, or forcing a switch. Um, you want to have more control as the, you know, to, to when and how you want to switch and get them to work together to help you bet, better manage your life because otherwise it become unmanageable and we can lose jobs and we the the dissociation um the dissociative amnesia so these laps in our memory it gets it's impairing and so if that's happening you know that's where it becomes difficult and so that's where this uh 
kind of like working together becomes a better option. Integration can be for some people, but it sounds like for the person who asked this question, that's not what you want. And that doesn't have to be a goal. I don't believe that in order to heal, you have to integrate. I will, um, I do want to acknowledge that there might be kind of more specialized trauma work that would need to be done with someone who fully understands DID because you might have to acknowledge and work through the trauma with different alters. And I know that sounds weird, but you might have to do it in multiple different ways. Like I had a patient once, I never diagnosed her with DID. She ended up in treatment and then ended up seeing her therapist from treatment when she got out. So it was not, it was kind of more of an abrupt ending to our therapy than I had wanted, but I believe she had DID. And when we would talk about things, sometimes I would get the protector version of her. And sometimes I would get like this like childlike version of her. And it was somewhere in between their two views of a situation. I would get like the fuller picture of the trauma and we would have to work through it differently depending on kind of who showed up. And I think there might be some work in there that you're going to have to do with your therapist to, to kind of manage the fact that they're that there are versions of you that all experience this trauma and, and are dealing with it in different ways. There might be a a various amount of tools. We're going to need different types of resources and tools because one coping skill is not going to work, you know? Um, So yeah, I think finding someone who really understands DID is going to be really helpful, but integration is not the only treatment goal. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So my question is, how do you get yourself to a place where you are able to talk about certain topics in therapy? Hmm. I've been in and out of therapy my whole life, and I am now seeing a therapist that I really like and trust. I've been able to open up about many difficult topics, but I cannot get myself to bring up my long history of medical trauma. I know this is something that I need to work on because I have chronic illness and can barely even go to the doctor for minor issues without having the worst panic attacks ever and feeling re-traumatized. I'm so sorry. I want this issue to get better, but I just feel like it will never feel okay enough to talk about this trauma, even with someone that I trust and feel safe with. Are there any tips or tricks that I could do to help um, help myself work up to addressing this one day in therapy? Thank you so much for everything. Your podcast and videos have helped me so much recently and really helped me learn how to be in therapy better. I'm so glad. This is a great question. Medical trauma, unfortunately, is incredibly common. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Even when there's no like malicious intent, meaning they didn't mean to do anything. It's just, just traumatizing. A lot of times when we have to go to the hospital, it can be because we were in a traumatizing situation. Do you know what I mean? So in order to get yourself to a place where you can talk about it, um, I've have, I've offered tons of ideas over the years. I'll give you a few of them and then we'll talk specifically to this question. So one thing is we can write it down and bring it in and just hand it to our therapist. Or if your therapist allows you to like text or email in between sessions, you could try that. Sometimes just getting it out in a way where you don't have to say it out loud to them can be much easier. And I think it's because we don't have to put words to it that we hear while we say it. There's something about the words coming out of our mouth for the first time to another person because you were able to write it here, right? You were able to ask me. 
Why is that different, right? Sometimes it's different to type it up and to be more anonymous or to send it out that way. So if you can email or write and do that or text, ask your therapist if you can. And you can say like, I don't expect you to reply, but I just need to get something out. That might be a way. Another way, and someone in the comments mentioned this, um, they're called doorknob confessions. And I've had patients do this over the years. It's funny because I learned about it in school and thought, this can't be that common. And then it was incredibly common. You'll have a whole session with someone and you're talking about what you think is the big deal. Like I remember I had this uh, this patient of mine years ago where she was talking about anxiety due to testing. She had test anxiety and that's really what she said brought her in to see me. And so we've been working together for, I don't know, like three or four sessions. And then one session, she walks to the door and she goes to grab the knob and she turns to me and she's like, you know, I wonder if the anxiety comes from the fact that, you know, my dad sexually abused me as a kid for a while. And she's like, okay, well, you know, see and see you later. Bye. Boom. And it's like, she, as she was leaving, she was like, I'm going to drop this bomb because I don't want to talk about it now, but I want you to know. And sometimes that can be helpful too, because then you don't have to talk about it. And in that moment, but it's there and you've like, ugh, you like lobbed it into your therapist and then we catch it, we write it down and we bring it up next time. So that could be something because sometimes therapists bringing it up for us and asking us questions can sometimes help us open up. It's another option. And then there's like, I guess my final tip for you, and this is more specific to this, is it might, and I guess it works for everybody too, but it might be helpful just to tell your therapist that you've opened up about a lot of things, but there are some things you're really struggling to open up with and open up about um, and just talk about that, the fact that it's hard. And I would be curious in your own personal work if you have any idea why this issue is difficult to talk about. Like, what is it about? Is is it is there shame involved in it? Is it because of the chronic illness? Do we have some kind of like shame, guilt, embarrassment about it? I'm just curious. I know there is a lot of shame associated with, uh, you know, trauma in general but especially when it comes to medical trauma and we can hate, like I, the reason I say it that way is I had a ton of patients in the eating disorder clinic hated going to the doctor, not only because they didn't want them to acknowledge or notice that they had an eating disorder, but also because they felt like they were going to do things too quickly and didn't ask enough questions and it felt overwhelming, right? So there's like the shame about whatever you're struggling with, like a dentist, you know, would notice if your teeth are eroded, if you struggle with bulimia or you're underweight or got osteopenia or osteoporosis. So there's all of that. And also doctors move fast. And sometimes we just don't want people touching, you know, so I know that it's really common and I'm, I'm just cu- curious about what is in it for you. What makes this so hard to talk about? And could we at least tell our therapist that there's just this one thing or this group of things that we just can't talk about and we don't know why? Um, and sometimes just bringing it up and having your therapist ask questions about it as a whole, not specific, right? Because they wouldn't know. It can sometimes allow us to feel a little bit freer to talking about it and give give yourself time. We don't have to be able to dump everything. Um, Therapy is a process and that trusting process takes time. But those are just some of my tips and tricks and ways that you can hopefully open up and feel okay talking about certain topics in therapy. Ooh, and last little thing with that, um, when you tell them, or if you tell them that like you're having trouble opening up about this chunk of things, you might just say, do you have any tools or things that I could use to kind of calm my system down? Because I feel overwhelmed, like I'm going to go into a panic and I can't breathe. You know, I don't know what comes up for you, but like mention that and say, are there some tools or things that we could do? Because that could mean that then 
Maybe they offer you some silly putty or if it's okay with you, they like touch your back or something, or maybe they put on some music or maybe you put a blanket on or, you know, there's different things that you can do in session to help calm you down so that you feel okay. And that might help you feel safer to share as well. Okay. Now there was a comment on this and it says, Katie, could you maybe do a general video about medical trauma if you have the time? I definitely can. I guess I don't know the thing I've struggled with when it comes to medical trauma is like, what would the video be about? Would I, would you want me just to describe what it is or like signs that maybe you've struggled with it? Or, you know, I, I guess that's what I've had a tough time with. So if you have any ideas, you can leave them in the comments because I would want to know like what you want to know, like what would be a helpful video? Cause I'm sure I can talk about medical trauma, but do you want like signs and symptoms or do we want um, like why it's so common? Like, I guess where, what direction should we take with it? You let me know. Um, okay. This person said, you mentioned that in term to, uh, oh, in merch, mentioned that term in response to an add-on that I made a few weeks or months ago. And before I didn't even know that that was a thing. I had an uh, adverse experience as a little kid. And I guess if I'm honest, it's still affecting me 25 years, oh, at 25 years old. Sometimes I think I shouldn't, it shouldn't be because there was absolutely no bad intention involved. Intention is not necessary when it comes to trauma, unfortunately. It'd be like, for instance, if let's say our trauma was a car accident, if that person didn't mean to hit us, doesn't mean they didn't hit us, right? It's still, we're still affected. Okay. I wasn't abused or anything, but I guess the symptoms are kind of similar. Yes, definitely. Because feeling out of control, feeling um, you can still be hurt. And especially when it comes to medical trauma, there's something about seeing doctors or nurses or being in a hospital or any kind of setting like that, where we think like they know best. And like I said, they move quick and they don't always explain what they're doing. And and if we are like in need of emergency services, we can often not even like be aware of what's happening. They're not telling us and they're I don't know, like, let's say we had a broken leg, they could be like cutting our pants off to get to the wound. And it, it, there's a lot that happens and it feels, it can feel very violating and very traumatizing. Okay. There was another add on. It said, I can definitely relate. And thank you for asking a few years ago. I had a big surgery and I almost died. And since then I have hated hospitals, but oddly enough, more at night. And if I'm alone at probably less safety, right? It's night, night could be scary. And alone means we have no support. Ugh. I've had multiple follow-up surgeries and would always dissociate, have a panic attack, et cetera, to the point where my psychiatrist had put me on meds. But whenever I talk about it in therapy, it doesn't bother me that much. But when I'm there, I freak out. That's your key to recovery. We'll get into that. I'm not sure if exposure therapy would help. It's like you read my mind. And I've tried EMDR, but I feel like I need to deal with this. Sorry, I hope this all makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Of course, exposure therapy is going to be where you got to go because you can talk about it it's being in the place that's like, oh, and so part of your exposures will probably be even doing a session in the waiting room or something, um, which I know sounds a little weird, but you'll get there. It's one thing at a time. Remember little baby steps. Exposure therapy is not like fast. Um, we take our time, but I think that's really where the healing will come because the actual stories of what happened isn't what's upsetting. It's putting yourself back there and having to go back. And since life comes with ups and downs, we're going to have to go back to doctor's offices or hospitals, especially because you had like follow-up surgeries, right? So, you know, unfortunately we're going to have to figure that out in exposure therapy. You, you knew, you knew. Okay. Question number five says, hi, Katie. My question is, how do you cope between therapists. Ooh, it's hard. My old therapist left, but because of wait lists, it's going to be a while until I can see someone new. 
I am struggling, including with suicidal ideation. I don't have much social support. So I'm interested in any advice on how to make this time easier. Um, I might encourage you to try BetterHelp um, or Talkspace or some online resource. There's even like Crisis Text Line, which is free, but it's not actual licensed professionals. It's like crisis counselors. And they're not good with suicide. And people told me that they've called the police because they just don't really know and they get scared. So I'm just giving you options, but I don't know if that one would be the best. But finding someone online that you can at least connect with a little bit um, could give you that kind of bridge the gap between your old therapist and your new therapist. And I'm very interested as to why your old therapist left. If they like moved away, I hope they gave you time because that it sounds a little patient abandonment to me, which is, you know, what it sounds like when a therapist just like leaves you in the lurch without another person um, where you were supposed to give like transition time, like give you the list of four people or more to try to call and see and then get you transitioned before we leave you. So you don't, you're not without. Um, my advice though, is to get extra support. So the hope for recovery, like I said, they have free groups. That's another good resource. Um, also just our community, we have a great community over on Patreon and we have live streams every month. I know it's not therapy, but it's at least connection and support from other people. Um, I think that anything we can do to kind of give you that little extra, I don't even know what, I guess bridging the gap, extra support while you need it is going to be really key because the one thing I don't want you to have to do is call the hospital and go in because you know, your suicidal thoughts have gotten too strong. So I want you to know that you're not alone. I want you to know that there is a community here. There are people online that can help. There's free groups, free resources. Um, Yeah, we can find you some support. And so just finding that support is going to be the best because coping in between therapists, we can get like workbooks and, and do some of the work on our own or continue some of the homework we were already doing in therapy. That's also a great way to, you know, keep things going, but depends on your motivation level. I know depression and suicidality can like take away our motivation. So maybe joining a group online is better, like the hope for recovery or uh, seeing a therapist or texting with a therapist through better help for, you know, much more reasonable price. Those can all be ways that we can, you know, get you that support until you're placed with someone new. Um, yeah, hang in there. It'll get better. It'll get better. Trust me. Okay. Moving on to question six. It says, Katie, I'm on the waiting list for a new therapist. Seems like everybody is. I'm really struggling at the minute and I'm, I'm not sure how long I can keep waiting, but I also don't feel like it's bad enough for a crisis support. It doesn't have to be terrible for crisis support. I mean, I don't know how your system works, but I think, and this is, it's kind of funny, these two questions back to back, I put them back to back because they're very similar. says, do you have any advice on someone who's in limbo waiting for treatment, but isn't able to cope while they're waiting? I think that's what crisis is for. Crisis support is there for you. I would reach out to them. Uh, My main issue is PTSD symptoms. I have nightmares and flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, and just general depression. Thank you. Um, Okay two thoughts to add on. And these both got a lot of thumbs ups. And I think that's just because so many of us, first of all, I just want to acknowledge the fact that people are burnt out. Therapists are burnt out. All of my friends who are in the mental health field, it sounds terrible to say, but I have so many friends that like don't want to do it anymore. They're burnt because of just COVID. And I feel like our world, I don't know. It's like, it's been overwhelming. I mean, I've talked about this on my main channel about my own personal struggles with it. And I think just not just COVID, but everything else that's taken place, it's just been a lot. 
and everybody's wanting to get into therapy and which is great. But then, you know, we need new therapists who can offer it and we don't always have them. And a lot of my friends like aren't taking new patients because they're burnt out or taking an extra day off and not filling those slots because they're tired. And so the waiting lists in general, even in LA where when Sean and I live there, like it was hard to see someone. And even here, um, I need to be more active, but the people that I've reached out to aren't taking new patients. So I've called a few and I've, I'm being honest with you. I've fallen off. I haven't continued to call and that's my fault. Um, but you know, it's finding people that you like and connect with and, and, uh, we've just been burnt. So I just wanted to acknowledge that, that that's happening. So, uh, same thing as I kind of said with the question before all those other tips and tricks, like the hope for recovery. And I think it is bad enough for crisis support. We often wait too long to get that crisis support. We think that a crisis has to be something more than it does. And I'm here to tell you that right now you're in crisis. You're having a hard time. You have no therapist. You're on a waiting list. And that's what crisis support is there for. So whenever you need that extra connection, I encourage you to reach out to crisis support. And then we'll do what we can to get you other, uh, other help along the way. Like I said, a crisis text line, um, which is just trained crisis counselors, not licensed professionals, but that's a great resource, 741741. So there's crisis text line, there's better help, uh, there's talk space, which is another online therapy option. I think it's a little more expensive than better. I might be wrong now because things change all the time, but pick something that maybe works with your budget. There's the hope for recovery free groups. Um, if you, I, I don't know for this person, but anybody else out there, if you struggle with alcohol or drug addiction, there's NA and AA and they have online groups now and those are free groups. Um, I know they aren't like therapy therapy groups, but they are support. Um, if we're struggling with binge eating, I don't like Overeaters Anonymous for their tenants and what they, they like preach kind of, but again, it's support. If we're just looking for support, it's support. So there's OA meetings, also Codependence Anonymous. Um, there's a ton of those types of groups that are free too. So I think um, in general, finding some extra support through those and even our community, right? Our community obviously is not suited for crisis intervention, but we are suited to as friends and as you know community members to listen and support. We have the Facebook group, Katie, that could be helpful too. Um Yeah. And then also, like I said before, you can pick up your own workbooks and stuff, get them on Amazon or wherever you buy your books and do some of the work on your own, even just journaling. I offer a ton of different tools and techniques in my book, uh, Traumatized, since you're working on PTSD stuff, if, if you're able to get through it, you know, if it's not too overwhelming, there's lots of tools and techniques there. And in my videos, then we can kind of take it on like our own like homeschooling uh, or home therapy kind of uh, process. And that can be a way for you to get some extra help and support as well. I hope that um, I hope that helps. It will get better. We'll get you through it. Just hang in there. Okay. Moving on to question number seven says, hi, Katie, I'm wondering if you can help explain the concept of nonverbal sexual consent. I always thought consent had to be explicit and verbal and that it had to be done in that way prior to progressing to the next step. And of course, that the other person couldn't be coercive or otherwise unable to consent. It's interesting because most sexual consent, I would say, is actually nonverbal. But we'll get into this. While I still think this is the very best way to handle consent, it is. Verbal is, I mean, there's no confusion. Okay. It says, I was informed about nonverbal consent being valid recently. I'm quite confused by this and I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be hurt anymore in situations where I'm un, 
aware that consent is being requested non-verbally and I continue to non-verbally be enthusiastic because I think we're staying at the same step we're already at and I am unaware um oh that a question was being posed to do something that I didn't want so therefore I maintained enthusiasm um when I would have said no if I had known that they were non-verbally asking to do something else but I couldn't respond with a no because I had no idea a question was being posed how do I know someone is non-verbally asking for permission in a sexual encounter and how do I know what they are non-verbally asking for permission to do what are acceptable ways of requesting nonverbal consent? And can you answer this question with specific examples for each step of a typical intimate encounter, like consent to kiss, remove clothes, fondle, touch, penetrate, um, oral sex, general and general penetration, bodily fluids in on you, etc. Also, how can I be enthusiastic at one stage, maintain the mood at that point and make sure it doesn't come off as the next stage being something I'd be okay with if nonverbal consent is a valid construct? I'm not asking to learn about ways to request nonverbal consent, but rather to identify ways that other people might be asking me for it so that I can protect myself from trauma. I do not want to uh, want by being, oh, trauma I do not want by being aware of a request being made so that I can assert my no right away or at least stop showing enthusiasm when those nonverbal requests come. Because the reality is that some people do rely on nonverbal consent for some or all of their requests. I agree. Regardless of how much I'm against that approach when when possible for that person to verbally make requests, as in they are not disabled in any way that affects speech. Thanks. I thought this was a great question. There were lots of comments below um, kind of offering their insights and advice as well and I just a lot of it was great so if if you have this question you can find this question in the uh, community tab of this podcast channel and you can read some more of that as well but I'll I'll sum up what my thoughts are here I do have to agree that I think by and large a lot of consent is nonverbal and that is by uh essentially and I know this sounds terrible but I'm just being honest with you um if you are like making out, let's say we're kissing with someone. So it's already, we've already started kissing, which I think kissing is probably the easiest to like stop right away. Like if someone comes in for a kiss, you pull away. That's a nonverbal no. I pulled away. Or, I mean, I went on this horrible date like eons ago and this guy tried to kiss me. I just had to palm his face. I was like, I don't think so. Um, push him away. Now I know not everybody, like the person who asked this question in a comment like later on, they said that, you know, they can dissociate, right? It's triggering and they're dissociated. So they can't speak. And so they, and they can freeze up. And so I think to be honest, my best, I've, I've like two words of advice. Number one is talk to your partner ahead of time. Now, I don't know if there's like a partner and this is like a repeat thing, but I think when it comes to what you're okay with and not okay with, even if this person isn't like, say we're just going on like a second date or something or a first date, I think as comfortable as you can say something to the effect of, you know, sometimes I just want to let you know, sometimes, you know, when I'm kissing someone or when I'm uh, being sexually intimate, I don't know how comfortable you're going to be. It's up to you how much you want to share. But I think something to the effect of, you know, I always appreciate being asked before something's done. Now, I know you cringed and I know I'm like, oh, is there a better way to say it? Honestly, I always fall back into and I know this isn't sexy and I know this isn't what people want to hear. But if we can't talk about something, then we probably shouldn't be doing it. And I know you're like, 
Well, that doesn't make any sense. It does. Because if I can't say to someone, hey, before you, you know, it goes any further, just I want you to ask me. If I can't say that and they're not okay with it, like if they're not going to respect that, then they're a dickwad anyway. And we probably shouldn't see them anymore. And it's not a lot to ask. You know, they're wanting to do something together with you and you're, you're 50% of that participation. You have a right to say yes or no. And if you're needing that verbal consent, you're going to have to tell them that you need it. Now, um, they asked for specifics. So let me make sure I don't miss this. Okay, it says, um, what are acceptable ways of requesting nonverbal consent? Okay, so like for the consent to kiss, like I said, pulling away or leaning in. If you want to kiss someone, you put arms around them, you move towards them. And I think that kind of goes with a lot of sexual intimacy or a lot of different physical intimacy things is that we're going to move towards, we're going to like another way if we're talking about like touching, right? So we've moved past just kissing. If we're removing clothes or something, you can help them do that to you or you can stop them. And that's the same pulling away, re-buttoning, pulling your body away. Um, Those are the nonverbal no consents. And the, the consent is touching, helping, pulling towards, actively engaging. And I know in your question, you were saying like, but I'm enjoying, like, let's say we're just making out. You're like having a good time in that that level of intimacy, but then they think that means that you can progress farther. And that's where you pull back, pull their hand away from whatever and continue kissing. And I know it's always, there's always like a, a few seconds of awkwardness, but we can keep kissing. And if they don't respect that pull away and they try again, that's I mean, from my experience when I was younger, that's when you like stop, you stop the situation, you pull away and you say, I don't want to do that. And if they, but, 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 but fuck that person, respect my boundaries or get out, you know, I'm not, not ready. So I think that goes for all of it. Like, but then when it comes to things, when we're actually having sex with someone like penetration, we're actually having sex, then, you know, whether or not you're okay with certain things, you're going to, the most especially for in certain things, you can't always communicate in the moment. It might be best to, uh, or you can't like non-verbally, you're not pulling away. You're just like, I don't want that. You might just have to say it. Like, I don't like that. I don't want, you know, uh, what did they say? Putting bodily fluids on you. I don't want that. You know, please stop. Or can we just do it this way? I find if you're in the mood, if you're in the moment and you're enjoying what, what you're doing, it's best to um, to say it like, hey, can we do this instead to offer an, another option so that you don't like kill the moment and make them think that you're not enjoying it when you are. You just don't want to do that. You know, um, it's also always OK just to to like uh, if so, like I know this might be getting a little too much for people, but if someone's pushing your head down to uh, say to initiate oral sex on them, they're wanting you to give them oral sex. You do not allow that if that's not what you want to do. You pull your head up and say, I don't want to do that or I don't do that. Um, and again, if they don't understand or they act really upset about it or they they're not a that's not someone you want to be in a relationship with. And I know you like might say easier said than done. But when I tell you that a good partner will always respect what you want and don't want, that's that's the truth. There's a lot of dickwads out there. Lots of people who won't take no for an answer. Lots of people who will harm other people and re-traumatize people. And we just don't need those people in our lives. And I know you can be like, but but I like them. If they don't respect you when you say no, I, they're not worth it. 
a, a real person in a real relationship will always respect someone's boundaries, especially when it comes to sexual acts. Um, okay. I hope that helps. I hope that was clear enough. If you need follow-ups, let me know. Um, but a lot of it's just that pulling away or helping and initiating yourself a little bit and noticing if they pull away or freeze, you know, um, especially those of us who've been traumatized or just like trauma informed, meaning we're just aware of it. We can often be more sensitive and and more uh, reactive and and pick up on things more quickly. And so we can do verbal check-ins if we need to. I think it's kind of learning what works best for you, what feels the most comfortable for you. Um, But I find just the like pulling away or the initiating or helping, those are the easiest ways to either say no or say yes without saying it. Okay, final question. Question number eight says, hey, Katie, is there such a thing as too many diagnoses? I deal with PTSD, DID, OCD, bipolar one, body dysmorphia, and potentially even atypical anorexia. But I feel this sense of guilt with having been diagnosed with so many things as I feel as though it may make me less likely to be believed and not really be taken very seriously. It's like, how could a person deal with so many issues at the same time? And also how bizarre that it might come across to other people or even to my own therapist. My therapist has been very affirming and telling me that she doesn't judge me for having as many issues as I have and believes me. But I was curious on how to lessen that anxiety. I see a lot of people in recent media saying that many people out here on social media are faking their disorders for attention because they have, quote unquote, too many. God, gotta love social media. People can be so nice, right? And I get super, super anxious about being labeled as such. Thanks. This is a great question. And overall, there's no such thing as having too many diagnoses, but I, I want to speak candidly here. As a therapist, when someone comes to me and has a bunch of different diagnoses, let's say more than like three or four, I'm always suspicious about if something's misdiagnosed. It does not mean that you cannot have more diagnoses than that. But even when I read through your list, I'm like, hmm, okay, PTSD, DID, OCD, I I see a lot of patterns of connection. Again, you can be diagnosed with these things, but I always want to see if there's some overlap and some misdiagnosis, or if they're all kind of connected to the same root. Those are the two things I'm looking for. Again, you cannot have too many, but with the list that you gave to me, the body dysmorphia and the anorexia, atypical anorexia, those are, I would put those together. They're connected. Um, And then I think we have trauma, uh, which led to the PTSD, which also led to the DID. And the OCD is another one of those coping skills we've got. So in my mind as a therapist, I would say we've got like these coping skills is DID, OCD, uh, eating disorder, body stuff. Then we, as a resets because of the trauma. So it's like the trauma caused that. So we have PTSD and all of these fall under as like coping skills. And then over here we have separately bipolar one disorder. And that would be how I'd like break it out in my brain. And I think sometimes, at least for my patients who have a lot of different diagnoses, it can help us feel like it's not so, there's not so much. It's not overwhelming because that's the problem that I have with uh, people getting diagnosed quickly is that we can feel overwhelmed by it. And like, well, what do we work on first? I've heard from a lot of you like, well, what do we work on first? And that's how I kind of parse things out is like, what are the root causes and how do we, how do I even manage all of this? Because my, my belief here for this person is if we are able to do that trauma work, really dig in, it's uncomfortable, I know, but process through it, work through it. I have a feeling our DID will lessen. We can work better, uh, get our alters to work together. 
body dysmorphia and anorexia can be recovered from. OCD, slowly go down. All of that, by and then managing the bipolar one with medication. I know I'm making it sound super simple and I'm talking about trauma work. I'm not trying to minimize or invalidate your experience. But overall, just to answer the question, because I can really get into, obviously, as you can see, there's no such thing as too many diagnoses. It is important to ask and make sure we don't feel like that we're misdiagnosed because I don't know how long people saw you before they gave you a diagnosis, but I'm always suspicious when it comes really quickly, right? Want to spend time, want to make sure. And then just know that they all are like most of those are connected, right? There's a reason for them. There's a root and nothing happens in a vacuum. My eating disorder patients never only have that diagnosis. I don't think I've ever had anybody just have an eating disorder diagnosis. There's also usually something like uh, anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD going along with it. And I would be suspicious, just that made me think, the OCD versus the anorexia, I always want to make sure that those do meet criteria separately and they're not part of the same thing because there can be a lot of overlap there. But all in all, um, having a lot of diagnoses doesn't mean any, I mean, there's no judgment there, especially in the, the mental health space with professionals, you should not feel any judgment. We see it all the time. It, that's, it's, not a, it's not a lot. It's just what you're working with and what you're dealing with. And a lot of them are coping skills and ways that you've managed to survive. And so that's just how I do it. I don't know. Those, that's just my, my thoughts and my insight about it. People online are assholes. Let's just be honest. Our community is lovely, but anybody outside of it just wants, people just want to judge and be mad and yell and, and claim that they know more and they don't. And people, why would they care if people are faking their disorders? I'm not saying people are. I'm just saying, what's it matter? Get over it. If that helps them and that helps them feel supported, move on next, you know? So I don't think you're faking anything. There's no, no such thing as having too many diagnoses. Just make sure that you agree with the person who gave you the diagnosis that it is in fact what you're struggling with. Um, yeah. So those are my thoughts. I hope that's helpful. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope my answers are helpful. There was a lot um, today about like consent and sexual intimacy. And I do have a video coming out about uh, overcoming the fear of intimacy. And I hope that that's helpful. But if you want me to dive deeper into more specifics, just let me know. You know, I'm always happy to do so. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you.